Welcome back to another episode of the Off The X Podcast. It has been quite some time since I've put on a podcast. I am happy to be back. I am your host. My name is Cody. And on tonight's episode, we have a very special guest, New York Times bestselling author and former Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent, Mr. Fred Burton. Fred entered the DSS in 1985 and was assigned to what was then called the Counterterrorism Division within the DSS. He was involved in several high-profile cases that you've likely heard of, including the investigation into the mastermind of the First World Trade Center bombing, Ramzi Youssef, the kidnapping of CIA Station Chief in Lebanon, William Buckley, the many kidnappings of American citizens by Hezbollah, and more. It was an awesome episode with an awesome guy, and uh, please, please listen in, and I'll catch you all on the next episode. But uh, if you could, Fred, um, would you mind just telling us when you came into DS and and maybe just briefly highlight your <clears throat> your uh, your assignments, and then really want to get into the CT portion. I know that's your your specialty, uh, and get into some of those cases that you're involved in. Sure. First, Cody, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it's truly a uh, honor and a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, I think that. Um, when I joined uh, DS, it was a very unique time period uh, in our organization, just from a historic perspective, because uh, I was actually hired in 1985, and I had been a uniformed cop before that in Montgomery County, Maryland. And, and when I came into the organization, after obviously the, the our basic training, you had a hybrid of the old gunslingers that were just living legends from the 60s and the Vietnam era. And then all of a sudden you have all of us uh, young whippersnappers that uh, came in after the Inman Commission had recommended the hiring of all these agents after all the disasters around the world affecting diplomatic missions. And so it was a unique period in time for me. And uh, right out of basic training, uh, Cody, I went uh, into what was called the counterterrorism branch. And you have to imagine that all of us that grew up in that time period, you're envisioning something that is really kind of cool and neat, and you would be stepping into like this James Bond-like world and and literally there were two agents from my basic agent class, myself and another one, a former DEA agent who was very crusty and had been there and done that. He had been a New York State trooper and a DEA agent and had been involved in all kinds of of uh, undercover work. And so the two of us show up in into our counterterrorism branch of DS to find that there was just one boss and we were it. So there were three of us literally on day one in the counterterrorism branch. And uh, my boss at the time uh, was in many ways uh, extraordinarily gifted as a pioneer in having done things that, as we all know in this organization, you could do that nobody else could do. So, uh, he turned out to be just a wonderful mentor for me because, Cody, I had gone from a police car investigating 
burglaries and taking, you know, larceny reports into the world of counterterrorism. And I can say this now, I literally had no idea what I was doing. And uh, our training, although it was good, really did not prepare me to do the things that I would eventually get myself involved with. Yeah, you referred to the to the Inman Commission. That's uh, Admiral was it Admiral Bobby Inman, right? That was after was the Beirut uh, attack. Yes, Admiral Inman uh, has uh, for years been a longtime mentor of mine. Uh, he is still teaching at uh, the University of Texas in Austin, where I live. And after the embassy bombings in '83 and '84 in Beirut, as well as the bombing at the U.S. Embassy in Kuwait. Uh, Inman chaired a panel, and he was extraordinarily well-respected inside the Beltway, had been a senior official at NSA, CIA, and at the White House. And he had recommended all these upgrades to predominantly physical security, moving the Office of Security at the State Department into the Diplomatic Security Service. And it became part of the Omnibus Diplomatic Security Act in 1986 which interestingly enough created uh, our Rewards for Justice program, uh, which eventually would fall into our office and also gave us our arrest authority. You know, before that we had to uh, take U.S. Marshals with you if you were going to arrest someone for passport or visa fraud. Oh, I didn't know that, okay. Um, And you were with the Counterterrorism Division. I don't know that we still call it that, Today, I think it's evolved into something else. And Robert Booth, I, I believe, is the one that alluded to, alluded to that. Um, were you in the counterterrorism division your your whole career? I was. Uh, what happened to me was uh, either fate or destiny, and I and I'm not really sure which. Uh, but um, when when our counterterrorism branch grew from three to four to five. Uh, At the time, we had a director, Clark Dittmer, God rest his soul, who was old school, but recognized the need for continuity in certain divisions. And so he asked me if I would be interested in converting from a foreign service special agent to a, uh, a criminal investigator in 1811 series and stay in our branch. And our branch became a division. And then our division became the Protective Intelligence and Counterterrorism Division. So as I understand it today, the Protective Intelligence Division uh, is began in our little three-man office uh, inside of uh, this small little cubbyhole in, in Foggy Bottom. Okay, sure. So PII is the one I'm familiar with, Protective Intelligence and, and Investigations, right? Uh, correct. Correct. So, okay. and at, at one point, we were protective intelligence and counterterrorism, and uh, I, I'm not so sure what it's called today. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, and how many years did you spend in, uh, Fred? I spent uh, from 1985 until 1999. I spent uh, my entire time within DS. Uh, as part of uh, Protective Intelligence, the Counterterrorism Division. Awesome. 
And you have a ton of casework and stories that you've written about. Um, and that I'm sure you've talked about on uh, in many different on many different platforms, and I was wondering if we can get into those. This is mainly what this podcast is about is just uh, anecdotal stories that DS agents go through, and and uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, your your good friend Robert Booth, um, he we focus primarily on CI, uh, which was rare because we just I don't have that on the podcast. I have your traditional RSO ARSOs that come on, and for you, we have. Uh, primarily or only CT. So I was wondering if we could jump right into uh, maybe one of your first cases that you got involved in. And uh, if, if you're okay with it, Fred, maybe one of them that, that uh, the public might've heard of first, uh, whether it's, you know, you tell me Yusuf or Buckley or just to kind of capture the listeners and, and bring them on in. Sure. I'd be happy to. Well, uh, my first day on the job, uh, my boss, Steve Gleason, uh, assigned me to the Middle East, and basically, I would subsequently learn it would be covering any groups that came out of the Middle East. But uh, he handed and throw on my desk uh, the Beirut embassy files. In fact, we had these old brown accordion folders called Beirut One and Beirut Two, and then we also had uh, the hostage files. So he assigned me to the aftermath, follow-up investigations of our embassy bombings and. Beirut and in Kuwait, and then the American hostages that were held captive in Lebanon. And most notably, that was uh, William Buckley, Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief. And within a short period of time, Cody, what happened was uh, the CIA's uh, counterterrorism center spun off a group called the Hostage Location Task Force, or the HLTF. And its primary mission was to find Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief who had been kidnapped. So since I had the Middle East and since Gleason assigned me to the hostages, uh, I had that portfolio. So we would meet at least every other week or so at the CIA to discuss updates on the hostages that were being held. And not only did we have Americans, we had Brits, we had French, we had uh, Irish, uh, we even had Russians kidnapped at one point in time. But the primary focus was to find Bill Buckley. So that was my case, basically, inside state DS. And this is the really kind of the unique aspect of the organization, which I know you understand and a lot of people don't get. In that time period, we literally were doing things that no other federal law enforcement agency was doing. So not only were we investigating bombings, such as our embassies in Beirut, we were also investigating the kidnappings of Americans around the globe under our broad mandate, our broad congressional mandate of uh, the protection of Americans and the protection of diplomatic facilities and personnel around the globe. So I ended up um, not only part of the debriefing teams, of talking to the hostages that either escaped or were freed. Uh, but we would also run leads down around the globe, mostly in Beirut, on information pertaining to the Americans' whereabouts. So from about 1986 to 1988, the predominant amount of my time was devoted to those hostage cases, which I eventually would go around to investigate and also put together a book 
on specifically that time period uh, and the kidnapping of Bill Buckley. And let's dig into that. So what, what or if you can, um, how did Bill Buckley initially get kidnapped? Where, where was he snatched from? And, and then what were the details and what was the outcome ultimately? Yeah, it's a great question. And it really, it's one of these transformational kinds of events, Cody, that really created uh, not only a lot of lessons learned and changes for how diplomatic security does business, but also how the CIA protects personnel. And what I mean by that is after the 1983 embassy bombing, which was conducted by the Islamic Jihad Organization slash Hezbollah slash under Iranian direction, uh, Bill Buckley volunteered to go into uh, Lebanon to stand up the CIA's operations because in the 83 embassy attack, a lot of the eyes and ears and CIA personnel that were subject matter experts in the region were killed in that bombing. So uh, Bill volunteers to go in, uh, in essence, to rebuild intelligence operations, uh, but he's also a specialist in hostage rescue, which is really very, very interesting when you start thinking about it. Uh, and then what happened was in 1984, he ends up being kidnapped himself. He was living off compound. Uh, in the morning, he go down, goes downstairs. He gets in his car. He pulls out. Uh, a kidnapping team blocks him in uh, and snatches him. Now, you can only imagine in this time period, this is a day before cell phones, the internet, our satellite capabilities were limited. Bill is just vanished. Uh, he doesn't show up for work. The embassy starts to scramble around. Uh, the regional security officer at the time responds to the scene, finds Bill's car there with the doors open, and he's missing. I mean, pause and think about what that would mean today if a America's senior intelligence officer just disappears from the scene in the aftermath of these horrific bombings in Beirut, not to mention hijackings and, and other chaos around the globe. So it was one of those moments in time that really kind of transformed not only how diplomatic security protects official Americans abroad, but also how, how the CIA protects its personnel. And it really started to create a whole concept of, of counter surveillance and how we go about protecting people abroad, um, threat matrices, trying to understand threat postures and so forth. So uh, I was very fortunate to be involved with that. And so meanwhile, Bill Buckley is missing. We have no human assets really to help us try to find Bill at all. We were blinded and uh, we were getting walk-ins all around the world. We were getting the usual kind of chaos that, that surfaces when one of these things happens. But most of the granular intelligence we learned was through the debriefings of the other hostages that were either let go or had escaped. And so we would spend hours debriefing hostages predominantly in Wiesbaden, Germany. And there was just a small team. I was one of three, usually, that would be involved in this. And early on in the handoff in my training, uh, I, I first learned how to debrief hostages, Cody, by looking at 
the debriefing reports from our personnel that were held at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 79. And I would read those reports. They were kind of a hot mess, no consistency, uh, different government agencies debriefing hostages. But at least in my mind, gave me an idea of how to approach a hostage that had either been freed or escaped during that time period. And obviously for us as an organization at the time, we wanted to learn if the hostage was aware of any other plans or plots. Uh, how did that hostage survive that kind of solitude? Uh, could that hostage have escaped at some periods of time? I know that we sat around for hours at times, Cody, in the 80s and kind of had no idea how Bill had been kidnapped. Uh, we had very few witnesses and those that had seen it happen didn't really want to cooperate. So how does the CIA station chief get kidnapped and nobody sees it happen? And how does he not see that pre-operational surveillance that led up to that kidnapping? So that really got my mind turning during that time period about the surveillance attack cycle, right? That something has to be happening before these events occur. And is there a way for DS as an organization to try to dissect these events with an eye towards learning how that attack cycle works? And just maybe, maybe we can learn something to prevent another kidnapping from taking place. Yeah, and I know that's something you specialize in. Uh, obviously, from that point on, uh, we we learn about that in training, the terrorist attack cycle and, you know, the uh, initial surveillance and kind of how it goes around in a circle and, you know, to the end point. Um, were you when, when you were so you were out of Foggy Bottom, it was your your office and you're talking about maybe debriefing folks. Were you uh, flying in and out of Beirut or different locations around the world to interview uh, former hostages or, or, or walk ins or whatever? Yes, in essence, uh, we were headquartered inside of Foggy Bottom. Uh, interesting sidebar, the, the bathroom outside of where our office used to be located was one where uh, back during the 70s, the, the weather underground had placed a, a bomb inside the building and it blew up almost three floors inside the State Department building. <laughs> Just as an interesting sidebar, I, I learned that like in my first week on the job, but um, physical security there at the department at the time was, how do I put this diplomatically, a little bit lacking maybe. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, so we would either uh, ask the regional security officers around the globe to do the debriefings of those kinds of walk-ins. Uh, human sources were rare, meaning you know I've, I've gotten over the years a lot of, a lot of questions surrounding this. Well, how could this happen? And in, in reality, Cody, and, I, and I'm, you know, I talk about it in my book, Beirut Rules, that there was just not any human intelligence to help us find the hostages, nor even point us into what direction they were being held in. And so we were literally looking for a needle in a haystack. And when that hostage was released, what would happen is we would have a SAM flight uh, we would bring the hostage out to typically uh, Nicosia, uh, and then we would get them on a SAM flight, special air mission, fly them to Rhine-Main in Germany, and then we would do the initial 
debriefing of the hostage there, once they were cleared by uh, the psychiatrist and medical, because a lot of these hostages had not had medical care for a, you know, a good number of years, nor dental care, and a lot of them had suffered extraordinarily personal tragedy in their lives, meaning either their parents had passed away, or, and so there was a lot of things that they had missed. So the, the initial debriefing was always conducted by uh, a psychologist slash psychiatrist who would give us a download to say, you know, look, this hostage is very talkative, really, really wants to get it off their chest. This one's somewhat reticent. Uh, you're going to have to tap dance around certain issues, which gave us kind of a mindset. So when we went in, a uh, very, very, very gentle breeze kind of approach, introduced ourselves. And we would typically start with, tell me about the last place you were held. We figured if we could figure that out, maybe we could do something about locating where they were. And then we would, once they once we would exhaust that location, who were you with? How were you held? What was the guards like? Were they friendly? Were you tortured? Blah, blah, blah. We would go back then to day one and try to reconstruct their time in captivity. The first location might have been an apartment building in the southern suburbs of Beirut. The second location might have been a rural farmhouse and they were held underground. And then we would go into great detail over each location and then we would track and map each, each hostage that they were held with. And in Bill Buckley's case, again, the CIA station chief that was kidnapped, he was always air quote special. They always held him with the other hostages in either a separate bedroom, a side kind of closet. Uh, he was segregated from the rest of the Americans, but the Americans knew that he was there. And <clears throat> forgive me, I took some notes here. I wanted to ask a couple of questions. What, so it sounds like you what, you what you found from these debriefs that the Americans were oftentimes, maybe all the time, held together in, in the same general location. And was it the same group uh, you mentioned, you know, obviously Hezbollah or Islamic Jihad back then and uh, that, that were kidnapping them or were sometimes it was just uh, similar to what was happening in Iraq where they knew, uh, you know, terrorist factions or just, you know, individuals that needed a buck would kidnap and then sell them to the terrorist groups? Did you find out that it was both or were these really kind of strategically planned events by the terrorist groups? It's a great question because we literally would argue about this uh, at the CIA and the hostage location task force because we had so many unknowns. For example, at a strategic level, Cody, what was the degree of Iranian involvement here? We suspected it but had no smoking gun. Then who is Islamic Jihad? One of the more interesting things that our unit did, the counterterrorism division, was we would get those communiques from Islamic Jihad every time they took credit for kidnapping a hostage. And we would run it through the psycholinguistic analysis. Uh, we would do forensics on that. We would try to determine if we had the same author of each communique. And one of the more interesting things from a tactical perspective that we learned 
over a period of time was much like you and I are chatting via Zoom, we would start dissecting the backgrounds of some of the hostage videotapes. And we would start looking to see what was unique about this one. Are there any comparisons to that one? We did a lot of old shoe kind of detective work to try to piece together similarities. And then we would think of things outside the box, such as, I wonder if we have the same photographer that was always videotaping these hostages. What kind of noises can we break down on the audio tape to try to help us locate them? And early on in this, Cody, at least the first year of this, we, the U.S. government, had no technical expertise to even break down a hostage videotape. So we had to scramble around and get a hostage videotape uh, analysis capability that we eventually acquired. I'll give you like an exact case in point. When Charlie Glass, uh, the ABC News correspondent, was kidnapped and ultimately escaped, while in captivity, uh, he had done a video. And the way he was talking, when we listened to it, it almost sounded like he had a Southern accent. So we sat around the table saying, I wonder if he's trying to tell us that maybe he's located in the Southern suburbs of Beirut. So those are the kinds of things that we were just speculating about. But then what happened with these videotapes is we had so many and we had so many similar uh, Islamic Jihad communiques, we, we, we very quickly, and, and the credit goes to uh, the CIA's uh, great analytical capabilities, uh, the State Department's uh, analytical capabilities, uh, we eventually were able to triangulate in and figured out that the group was very small, but in all probability was being led by uh, this infamous character that we would later identify as Imad Mognia of Hezbollah. And he was the one that would do target selection. And then uh, Hezbollah would send out their surveillance teams and, and a lot of the Americans were not hard to find. Uh, they worked at the Beirut University College. Uh, we had four taken at once that we called the Buck Four, which was also my case. Uh, then we had uh, the hospital administrator at the American University of Beirut, David Jacobson, kidnapped. Uh, and so a lot of these folks were easy to find. The Bill Buckley one was interesting to us because how did they figure out where he lived? Were we compromised somehow? There were so many unanswered questions surrounding that case, Cody, that I'm not even sure today, this many years later, we have a full picture of exactly what happened. Wow. Um, what, what, was the end, what was the end result with Bill Buckley? Did you find him? Um, no. Yeah. No, Cody. Um, you know, one of the more, um, I don't know how to explain this, uh, one of the more troubling moments early on in our debriefings were, uh, I vividly recall David Jacobson, the hostage, the um, American uh, University hospital administrator, uh, telling us that he firmly believed Bill was dead. And remember, the whole mission was to find Bill. And so it was three of us in this room, and David, who was a wonderful witness, a great guy, really wanted to help. And he said, I, Bill was sick. 
uh, he was coughing. We, we begged the guards to get him some help. Uh, and then one night his coughing just stopped. And we heard shuffling of feet. We heard them talking in whispers. And then all of a sudden we heard him being dragged down the steps. And David took his palm, Cody, and I won't do it here. And he started hitting the table inside the uh, hostage debriefing site at Wiesbaden, like Bill's head hitting the steps. And every time he would do that, all of us would just kind of reel back. And literally, there wasn't a dry eye in the room um, because we knew that we had failed. There was just this sense of failure on our part. And um, I remember taking a break. Everybody needed a break. And I went over. Uh, we had a secure voice phone set up in our debriefing room, side room, and calling back to the NSC uh, and, and telling them that David Jacobson said that Bill was dead. Well, you know how those calls back to Washington tend to go. Well, how do you know? Is he sure? Um, what proof does he have? And, you know, we had no proof. We had this man's word and based on the facts and circumstances, but we were firmly convinced that Bill, Bill was dead. And, um, but that did not stop us from continuing the debriefing process with David, continuing the debriefing process with others like Father Martin Jinko. Uh, and the list just went on and on and on. And eventually, eventually, uh, we were able to recover Bill's body uh, along with another uh, former Marine, a, a current Marine at the time, Lieutenant Colonel William Higgins, who had been kidnapped in a separate event. Uh, both of their bodies were recovered along the side of a road, Cody, and we were able to bring them home for proper burial. Bill is buried at uh, Arlington National Cemetery. Unbelievable career. I, I could walk through that if you like. Um, Rich Higgins uh, is buried at uh, Marine Corps um, uh, base there at Quantico. Uh, and, and Bill had had just been this remarkable man, you know, um, right out of high school, joins the Army. He goes over to Korea. Uh, he's a recipient of the Silver Star for rushing a machine gun nest. He comes back on the GI Bill. He goes to college at Boston University, um, goes back into the Army, becomes one of Kennedy's first Green Berets, uh, shipped off to Vietnam, um, joins the CIA, uh, and just has this distinguished career as kind of a troubleshooter one of the early, early kind of gunslingers that the agency had literally in this span of time from the 60s on into the 80s as the kind of guy you would send to places that were on fire, right? He was like a smoke jumper. And um, in the course of just putting together his life, we learned that his greatest fear was being kidnapped because one of his best friends had ended up being kidnapped and died in a in a Vietnamese prison. And, you know, the irony of that was just, that's exactly how Bill died. And 
it, it was a huge failure on our part. And I, I still think about that, Cody, and and that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to tell his story. So when you know um, I approached the CIA uh, before I did the book and said, "Look, you know, I, I want to tell Bill's story. Um, this is a hero who died for his country, and um, would love your help." And and the agency bent over backwards to help declassified a lot of his records, you know, gave me photos that, you know, that you could only get from the agency. And, and they introduced me to all of Bill's uh, old cronies and colleagues that he worked with over the years, especially the, that last assignment in Beirut. So um, anyway, it, it's, it wasn't a good look for U.S. intelligence during that time period, Cody, meaning the fact that we could not find um, the CIA's man kidnapped and held hostage in, in Beirut uh, is really kind of unthinkable today, uh, but but we didn't. But I, I can tell you this, we sure as hell tried uh, as best we possibly could, you know, in, in an age before technology, in an age before the internet. Um, but probably one of the, the biggest failures, uh, as I look back on, my career in the organization uh, that uh, we had. Well, you consider it a failure. I, I, I hear that, but there were some things that came out of it that probably saved lives in the future, right? The things you, you guys, you, the, the, the TTPs you all developed and terrorist planning cycle, et cetera. Um, how long from, from when he was kidnapped to uh, he was recovered? that take it was about 10 years um if the timeline in my mind was bill was abducted in 84 and if memory serves me right we recovered his remains in 93 um don't hold me to that just just off the top of my head uh, i do know that uh we were able to get rich higgins remains at the same time and they were both flown back together uh Ryan Crocker was there as a U.S. ambassador uh, to Lebanon at the time, big fan of DS. Um, and uh, I interviewed Ryan for, for my book because Ryan had also been at the U.S. embassy in Beirut when, when uh, the second embassy bombing occurred. Uh, so, you know, he had spanned the time period and, uh, was a big supporter of our organization and had nothing but great things to always say about how our regional security officers protected him in some very difficult times. Yeah, I recall uh, Ambassador Crocker serving uh, during more recent wars uh, or, or, or at the embassies uh, after their more recent wars. Um, wow. Okay. Let's... Uh, change pace here and 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 hop into another one if you're okay with that um ramsey yusuf i know uh we were successful in capturing him and i think there's a lot of uh folks that don't really understand either our role or maybe another three-letter agency uh claims uh some success there beyond what we <laughs> what we uh had to offer we as I'm shocked. NDS, I'm shocked, Cody. <laughs> right right can you believe that um, and uh, so maybe we can uh, talk about the Ramsey Youssef case, if you wouldn't mind. 
Sure, I'd be happy to. First, uh, let me say this, and I've said this repeatedly. I was just doing a speaking event in Houston. I, I've gotten way more credit than I deserve for this. Uh, uh, look, this was a diplomatic security service uh, success story. Uh, as you look at all the pieces that came together from the Rewards for Justice program to having great regional security office personnel at the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, Pakistan, uh, that uh, had to make some tough decisions. And in essence, uh, it, it came together very, very quickly. I, I, I don't think people realize, you get it, how quickly some of these things can unfold at times. But our office also ran the Rewards for Justice program. Uh, we had a $2 million uh, bounty to uh, capture Ramzi Yosef, who obviously had been responsible for the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993, where my office deployed personnel to. The New York field office was very active there, too. They haven't ever, nobody's ever gotten any, a lot of publicity surrounding that, but we actually took from my unit an, a portable Aegis explosive detector uh, to the first World Trade Center bombing, uh, which is a whole nother story. But um, so our unit had been involved in the hunt for Ramzi Yosef. We had the reward for him. Uh, we actually had, um, looked at him for document fraud because although he was known as Ramzi Yosef, his true name was Abdul Bassett. And, um, a colleague from our unit, Scott Stewart had actually put together a, a, a case against him. Uh, for visa fraud, uh, which is another story. But uh, so we had a lot of working pieces. And uh, I was in my unit and the phone rang and it was the RSO uh, Art Morell. Uh, old school guy had been SY turned DS. Before that, he was uh, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, uh, known as a great investigator in the in the hallway rumor. Uh, Art uh, called and said, hey, you know, we've had a, a walk-in claim that they know where Yosef is. And I said, well, Art, let me add that to the list. You know, we had Yosef sightings all around the world. He had been in Manila where his apartment had caught on fire while he was making uh, some of his witch's brew bomb material. He was there to try to kill the Pope. He had put bombs on airplanes. And it was kind of an, another needle in the haystack. We really had no idea where he was. Was he in the Philippines? Was he in Afghanistan? Was he in Pakistan? Where was Yosef? So we were getting walk-ins around the globe, and we were managing them and databasing them. And I said, okay, well, keep me posted kind of thing. And he said, where's the effect of, you know, something just seems right about this guy. I said, that's great, Art. And of course, like, Anybody else, you know, you kind of hang up and say, well, guy thinks could be something there. Let's move on. And, you know, we kind of continued our day in the life of of headquarters and CT. And lo and behold, what had happened was uh, two of our assistant regional security officers had responded to a house where this human asset, a human informant had walked up to the door, knocked on the door of a diplomat's residence off compound and said, I know where this guy is. 
And the diplomat had enough wherewithal to reach out to the security office on the down low. And uh, two ARSOs responded over uh, to debrief this guy. And it was really kind of an interesting way it unfolded. And so they called me back and say, hey, you know, we think we got the real thing here. This guy claims he knows where Yosef is and claims that Yosef is going to be back into town. He doesn't know exactly when, but um, he's going to call me when it happens. And I said, oh, that's great. Kind of keep me keep us posted kind of thing. Well, lo and behold, I think it was about a day later. I do know it was snowing very bad in Washington uh, during this time period. And uh, so the assistant regional security officer calls me back and Art Morell's on the phone, too. And they said, you know, look, we really think we've got the real deal here. And then the phone rang and the guy said, Yosef is in town. He's staying over in a flea bag hotel. And, you know, what should we do? And, you know, we we kind of talked about game boarding options. We said, well, if we go to the locals, will they help? During this time period, we didn't know if we could get the cooperation that we really needed. Who were we going to reach out to? And so, in essence, um, we kind of determined to go over and just see if he was there. And literally, they did. Two of our uh, ARSOs went over and kind of knocked on the door. And and uh, Ramsey opened. He had dyed his hair. It was red. Um, and the rest is kind of history. Well, needless to say, things kind of went south at that moment in time for, for uh, well, at least me, but also in Washington because it was like, well, how did how did this happen? How come nobody knew anything about it? And you know, I had kind of made a decision that the more people we told in D.C., the likelihood of this going sideways was great. And we kind of kept things compartmented, and the RSO there was like one of these last tour old-timers, and I don't think he gave a hoot about his career. He knew he wasn't going to get promoted. I knew I was never going to get promoted, so uh, I was kind of stuck in my uh, somewhat dreadful career, and uh, so it was kind of a marriage made in heaven. The real interesting part was... uh, after our agents did this wonderful job, uh, we were stuck with trying to figure out how we're going to get this informant out of the country. And that is really kind of an untold story, but uh, we were able to get the informant um, and his wife uh, and uh, an infant child out of the, out of the country, uh, bring them to the United States and put them in the uh, Federal Witness Protection Program. So um, that was uh, the caper. It all happened, Cody, within maybe 72 hours max. Um, And we eventually uh, met with the informant here in the United States and uh, paid him uh, 1.2 million in cash from the Rewards for Justice program uh, till that we had. and I just don't remember. We had a $2 million bounty for Yosef. I don't remember why we didn't pay him the $2 million and why he never hired a lawyer to come after us, right? But uh, uh, I think he was just probably lucky just to, to, to be in the good old U.S. of A. 
and uh, to to reap this windfall that that you know that's the kind of money that most people never see in life. Uh, I remember we had it all. We had the cash in our office. It's kind of a funny story, and you know how DS agents are, right? And we're sitting there looking at it, and it's stuck in one of those black GSA briefcases. And um, we're kind of looking at each other, saying, "Wow, look at all that dough." And you know the usual comments amongst each other. Well, you know maybe we could get on a plane and head to the head to Bahamas with this money, right? And I, I'll never forget. It was kind of a hilarious story. Uh, somebody at DOJ or I can't must have been the FBI. They'll be easy to blame on this. They said, um, "Well, you know this this informant has to report this income to the IRS." <laughs> We're kind of looking at each other, saying, "You know that ain't going to happen." You and I know that. So uh, that was just kind of a funny sidebar story to to that case. But uh, uh, the rest is kind of history. But I will say this. Back to your earlier point about dissecting these events and pre-operational surveillance and lessons learned. How we knew, how that informant knew what door to knock on was because that informant had walked around the diplomatic enclave there in Islamabad with Ramsey Yosef, taking note of where the American diplomatic and UK diplomatic plates were, were, were. So I believe, based on just having looked at so many of these attacks over the years in that time period, that Yosef was planning to kill or kidnap uh, either a US or UK diplomat uh, in Islamabad, and that's why he was mapping those diplomatic residences uh, there in Islamabad. So uh, by taking him off the board, which, let me say for the record, was done by DS special agents uh, who handed him off to the FBI, that um, we probably saved, uh, when I say we, our agents in Islamabad in the regional security office there and the great work they did uh, in this case uh, saved some lives. Yeah, I would say so, based on uh, all that information. So <clears throat> why did – this is all new stuff. So so my understanding of the story, which is, you know, you know the old Boy Scout thing where you tell someone in their, you know, a, a story, then he goes to the next person, then he goes around a circle, and the story just evolves into whatever it is. My understanding of the story is was is similar that 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 uh, uh, an AR so was there. I think it was Bill, Bill Miller. Bill's told the story. Um, two. two of them. Okay, so I didn't know it was two, and I, I thought the door was kind of like kicked in by uh, by uh, uh, Pakistani police. Maybe the relationships they had with the police department there. But you're saying they just knocked on the door. And he opened the door. He had red hair, and they captured him. Is that? Yeah. Now, uh, my memory isn't what it used to be at, at my age, but uh, uh, I'll never forget uh, being inside the FBI PSYOC, Special Intelligence Operations Center. And we had an open line with RSO Art Morell while Bill Miller and Jeff Reiner the two agents were at the scene and I could hear the radio traffic and down below me was John O'Neill from the FBI. God rest his soul. He perished in the trade towers collapse on nine 11 and uh, another senior FBI official by the name of Bob Blitzer and Al Bigler, 
was with me down. Al had been blown up in um, the second embassy bombing in Beirut, if memory serves me right. And I'm kind of whispering back and forth with Art, and I'm listening to the radio traffic, and I hear, we're at the door, we're at the door, and Art says, Fred, what, what should we do? And I said, go in. And he goes, Fred, I can't hear you. And I said, worst effect, go in. Because I really didn't want the FBI guys to hear what I was doing, right? Because then they would want to somehow jump in or, I don't know, meddle. And whether Bill kicked the door, I just don't remember, or they knocked on the door is my recollection of events. I'm sure the truth is probably somewhere in between based on urban legend. I would certainly go with what Bill said uh, as being the man on the ground there. I'm sure those that's the kind of thing you never forget. And I just remember this noise of, you know, an arrest taking place. And I, I heard, we got him, we got him. And Art says, we got him, we got him. And I already heard that. And I kind of put my phone on the receiver and I, I said, hey, the, the, the FBI leadership was, was down below. And I said, hey, we got him. They're, they're looking up at me. I'm seated up in this like auditorium like seat. They said, yeah, our guys got him. And I'll never forget the uh, one of the FBI guys said, well, was our legal attache there? And I said, Art, was the legal attache there? And Art said, Word, I can't repeat exactly what Word said, Art said, but the response was negative. And I said, no, it, it doesn't appear that your legat was there. And it was almost like you could suck the air out of that room. But in fairness, John O'Neill, who was a wonderful can-do kind of guy, uh, old Chicago FBI agent, black hair, greased back, cigar in his mouth, he said, this is great news. This is great news. We got we to gotta let the White House know. So uh, that's how that all unfolded, Cody. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, what, what? So just real quick on the informant, what – you mentioned he was working with Yusuf. What caused him to change? Was it he did he know about the rewards for justice that he would get a reward and you know money talks, or did he just have a change of heart? Or you know what exactly was the mindset of an individual that was supporting this guy that was probably going to do something bad to us? Well, it's a great question because in that brief period of time, we we contemplated and thought about motivation. The rewards for justice program certainly was a big catalyst for this. He, he knew he could make a lot of money. Secondly, he was scared. He was committed to the jihad, but he wasn't that committed. He had actually carried on a bombing run flight uh, a baby doll that had been hollowed out. Yosef's intent was to put explosives inside these baby doll bombs and get them onto various aircraft flying out of Southeast Asia. And so he had actually carried one on a test flight. And so he said, look, I'm committed to the cause, but I just don't want to die. I've got a family. And he was always worried that the next flight that Yosef handed him one of these kinds of baby dolls to get through security, they, they weren't screening the baby dolls for some reason, wherever they were flying out of. And he felt that he would be asked to carry something that actually had a bomb and that, you know, at 30,000 feet, he'd get blown to smithereens. So uh, there was a high degree of self-preservation on his part. And uh, there was also that monetary incentive. Uh, but um, 
I have no doubt that the Rewards for Justice program played an extraordinarily large part and maybe, maybe, well, at least on my watch uh, for that period of time, was probably the greatest success that we had for the program during the, that time period when it was, you know, when I was there. Certainly. And the Rewards for Justice program uh, goes on, still managed, uh, administered by by uh, DS, right? State Department. So very good. What else we got? So I, I you, you wrote PAC-1 here. What what exactly is PAC-1? Um, uh, that's something I haven't heard of, and I'm not sure if listeners have heard of it, but uh, would you be willing to go into that one a little bit? Be happy to. It's uh, I was recently interviewed for a BBC documentary on that case. Uh, uh, it hasn't aired yet, Cody, so um, uh, for what that's worth. But uh, again, you start thinking about the organization where we came from. And, and I have to say this, I'm, I feel extraordinarily grateful and blessed for the opportunities that the, the organization gave me at this very unique period of time. So uh, PAC-1 was the code name for the presidential aircraft in Pakistan that would fly uh, President Zia around the country. It was a spinoff of U.S. Air Force One. So inside of Pakistan, it was called PAC-1. Well, uh, in August of 1988, uh, our U.S. ambassador, Arne Rafel, uh, was on a flight with President Zia of Pakistan and uh, the head of the Pakistani Armed Forces, the Army, uh, and the equivalent of the NSC of Pakistan all got on a flight that left uh, Islamabad, Chaklala Air Force Base, the military side of the civilian air base, and flew down to this little town called Bawalalapur, Pakistan. And the purpose of that trip was to look at uh, some M1A or Abram tank trials. And we had given the Pakistanis uh, a bunch of army tanks. There was also a U.S. Army Brigadier General on that flight by the name of Wassam. So you have this huge contingent flying to this small little town. Our U.S. ambassador bumped the RSO from the flight because Artie Rafel, the ambassador, wanted to talk to President Zia because we had had an attack on a nun in that area. So he wanted to FaceTime with Zia. Now, hold, hold this period of time. And for those of you who listen to this, have any interest in history, in 1988, you literally have the largest covert operation underway in Afghanistan since the Vietnam War. It was predominantly the U.S. assistance to the Afghan Mujahideen. Why? The mission was to take out the Soviet Red Army inside of Afghanistan. So we were propping up the Afghan Mujahideen, and all of this was being routed through President Zia of Pakistan. He was our man, literally engaged in this covert Cold War, uh, kicking the Soviets' rears in Afghanistan. The Stinger missiles, the shooting down of the Heinz helicopters. I, I've long since, I probably should remember this, but I don't, the amount of Soviet soldiers that died in Afghanistan. So he was our guy. So you have this flight down to Bawalapur, Pakistan, on a bright, sunny day. It was August 21st, 1988, if memory serves you right. They get back 
into the flight, no security around the plane at all. The plane begins to take off and begins to roller coaster. It was a C-130, Vietnam era, and it goes like a roller coaster. Beautiful, bright, sunny day. The nose dives into the Punjab of Pakistan. As you can imagine, flash messages start coming in to Foggy Bottom, CIA, DOD. You've had the death of the president of Pakistan, the death of our U.S. ambassador, the death of a brigadier general, U.S. Army, and the entire Pakistani chief of staff are on this flight as well. In the midst of this Cold War underway in Afghanistan, so I would later find out that we were selected to be part of the investigative team in order to buy time to allow uh, Foggy Bottom and the White House to de-escalate things. Because the moment that plane hit the Punjab, Pakistan was blaming India. India said, we had nothing to do with it. Everybody's looking at each other and worried about literally nuclear war. Pakistan was ungoverned at that time. So the NSC decided, let's send a team over to investigate this crash. Well, lo and behold, I was selected to lead the DS team. And it was me and another agent from our unit in CT that flew over literally that day once we got notified of the crash, so by August 22nd, we're at Andrews Air Force Base on a SAM flight to Frankfurt Rhine, Maine, where we join a very small US Air Force accident mishap team. And we all get on this huge uh, C-5A, if memory serves me right, and we fly into Pakistan and to help reconstruct what happened. I was subsequently learned that the White House did not want to send NTSB or the FBI because the presence of the FBI would cause certain people, certain countries to suspect that sabotage or, or some sort of criminal act brought this plane down. So once again, DS is selected for a mission that uh, we probably had little subject matter expertise in. But we certainly knew how to interview people. We certainly knew how to take crime scene pictures. Um, and we certainly knew how to do the basics. So, um, but I, I can say this, Cody, you know, looking back on my, my time within DS, uh, there's two things that really stick in my mind, the, the hostage cases and this plane crash, although we worked other plane crashes as well. But uh, this was one that when that plane went down, it was at such a pivotal moment in time that um, it was probably the most complex case I ever was ever involved with, probably had the most geopolitical ramifications of any that I've ever been involved with. Uh, it was a remarkable experience. Uh, I'll never forget, um, uh, once we arrived, uh, we had... Uh, Pakistani military ISI intel binders that would watch us. And um, I wanted to get some witnesses to the plane crash. And I was trying to explain that. And the, 
the Pakistanis fanned out and we eventually found a goat herder. And I'll never forget standing there. You know, it's like something out of West Texas, right? You've got, you've got this crime scene where the plane crashed. The Pakistanis have set up a, buff, a buffet, literally, you know, within 50 yards of the plane crash. And this goat herder is standing there and it kind of looks like West Texas, right? There's dust devils spinning around. It's very flat, very dry, very arid. And the goat herder is standing there with his cane and he has no teeth. And I said, ask him what he saw. And, you know, they're relaying back and he gets very animated and he starts doing this. He goes, this is what the plane was doing. He's moving his arms up and down like a roller coaster. And he said that it hits the ground and goes boom. And so the plane was out of control. And so I remember sitting there thinking, how does a plane get out of control? On a beautiful, sunny day, weather was not a factor. And, you know, I would subsequently learn that, you know, you try to rule out things when you're doing accident investigations involving aircraft. You need to rule out, you know, catastrophic mechanical. You need to rule out catastrophic electric, electronic. You need to rule out pilot error. Uh, and so we had everything on the table here, you know, but this was the equivalent of uh, Air Force One in the air with the president of Pakistan. Uh, these were handpicked pilots. Uh, these were very loyal pilots. Um, there was a very short radio broadcast in that time period, which was minutes, Cody, where uh, you could hear this faint call on the aircraft radio of Masood, Masood. Masood was one of the pilots. And so we kind of reached a conclusion that the pilots must have been incapacitated in some capacity, meaning that would that would have caused the roll of the air of the aircraft if the pilots were not able to stabilize what had occurred. So, anyway, you know, looking back on that, um, um, and I, you know, I devoted a good three chapters to that to my first book because it was such such a complex kind of case to kind of figure out what happened. Were it only passengers on that flight, or were there uh, vehicles as well? Only passengers. It was okay. it was a Vietnam era uh, C-130. Uh, it had a VIP billet inside it. Uh, we don't know where everybody was seated inside that billet. Uh, a lot of conjecture. Uh, the The scene was horrific. Uh, you know. When I when I close my eyes, Cody, I can still see it. The the aircraft went literally nose down into the desert and you could see the outline of the wings where it hit. And it was all very confined. And of course, there was a huge fireball and everybody that was inside the inside the aircraft perished, obviously. Uh, so uh, it was a grisly scene. Uh, it, it was, uh, you know, a tough job to kind of just sort out things there with you know without going into a lot of grisly details but um um yeah you know you start thinking about that from the standpoint of just that period of time there were so many different actors that that could have been involved with that um you know the soviets certainly had a vested interest in getting even with president zia uh the u.s ambassador uh, was never scheduled to be on the flight 
was never manifested to be on the flight initially. It was a late add-on. The RSO was supposed to go, um, who uh, I talked to when we got into the country. And as you can imagine, everybody was shell-shocked. Uh, the embassy had just lost the ambassador. Uh, you know, pulling into Islamabad, you know, I remember we arrived at night, Cody, and uh, you know how this is in our in our organization from some of these war zones. I mean, literally like every 25 yards was a Pakistani soldier with a weapon. Um, there was a lot of suspicions as to who did this and why, and nobody knew. And uh, it was just, in retrospect, uh, did I want to go? <laughs> no. Uh, I went because, you know, someone had to go. Um, it was a unbelievable kind of experience of being associated with that kind of case. And, um, and the rest is somewhat history. Yeah. The, the reason I ask about the, the vehicles is there, there was a, there's a video uh, out from years ago of when, a, uh, I think it was, might've been a C5, but uh, vehicles were, were placed inside an aircraft, a military aircraft, and they weren't strapped down properly. And so taking off, was an issue and then when they got in the air you that the video actually shows that just the back end just dips and so when you were telling the story I, I was wondering if the outcome would be hey that they didn't someone didn't strap or unstrap the vehicles down properly but if it's only people in there then that that wouldn't make much sense but uh, you, you you kind of alluded to this at the beginning but where exactly was this location was this on the border of where this the war you know with the this, Soviets in Afghanistan well if you if you I'm 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 thinking back from a geography perspective. The plane took off from Chakalala Air Force Base, Islamabad, lands in Bawala Lapur, which was in the middle of nowhere, literally, in like an unsecure airfield. I don't remember off the top of my head proximity to the Afghan border. Um, I'll tell you, you know, it was in 1988, Cody. Unlike our today's 24 by 7 social media world. Although we were cleared to be above top secret, as you and I both know in this business, what we were exactly doing in Afghanistan was really kind of a close hold secret, meaning there wasn't a lot of people that were in the loop. Now, obviously, I wasn't in the loop, uh, but when I got there, you know, you would start to pick up things about, you know, what was taking place and what could have happened. And then you start to learn on the ground there that, there's a lot going on here that the U.S. is involved with that a lot of people don't know. And um, I'll give you a, a quick kind of uh, anecdotal story. You know, when we collected some forensic evidence, and I, I forget the timeline now. It must have been like a couple weeks later. Uh, and we were flying out, and we flew out in the middle of the night on another C-5A uh, with the forensics. Uh, to try to get some explosive analysis conducted. And um, the plane lands uh, there in the military side again. And there's a whole bunch of like Afghans that pile out. And it's like one of those scenes where, wait a minute, that was our ride home. And, you know, we were apparently just uh, uh, patching up some wounded to go back and fight, you know, to continue this war. And so there was things like that that were taking place that, you know, literally had no idea, at least I didn't back in Washington, as to the scope. And 
you know, the rest is somewhat history. You can read about that time period with our support for the Mujahideen there. But none of it was really known on an operational level to those of us that were in the weeds that were not assigned specifically to that problem. Yeah, no, that makes sense. A lot was obviously uh, learned later when things were de declassified. And there was a, a well-known individual uh, named Osama bin Laden that came out, of, came out of that Mujahideen, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so, so you you also talked about some. So, first off, that was 1988. So, you had the Buckley case and this case, and probably more on your plate within three years of you getting because you came in 1985, right? Yeah, it, it. You know, looking back on that, um, I I I don't know what to say other than it, it was it was confusion a lot of times. Um, a lot of our efforts were not 100% because we were 25% here, 25% there. We were probably doing the work of, you know, 12 people uh, on any given day. And then we had this laundry list of cold cases, which is something that always kind of stuck in my crawl. And those are the kinds of things now I go back and write about. Uh, a lot of the reasons for that, uh, Cody, to be blunt is, uh, out of guilt, I, I I look back at some of these old cases and think, what if I had taken the time in the 80s to to go back and look at these closer? Could we have made a difference? Uh, and remember, you know, in the 70s and on up to 1986, it, it really wasn't against the law to kill a diplomat overseas. That was a local crime. There was no federal statutes. There was no internationally protected person statute in that time period. So what you quickly found in going through our cold cases and in a ratty old uh, cabinet inside our unit was that there was this laundry list of just cases from, you know, going back to the 60s where nobody really had done much. And I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. It was like the organization known as SY was so small during that time period. There just wasn't a lot of people to do a lot of stuff. And so they just kind of cleaned up from that tragedy and moved on. So you mentioned some of these cold cases in our email and, and, uh, you know, uh, Colonel Joe Allen, uh, Ambassador Malloy, Ambassador Dubs. These were some of the cold cases that you had in your, in your, you know, in the safe for lack of a better term. Did you take any action on these? Where, where, I mean, you, I know you said you had some regret that, that, that maybe, but were, did you have some time to, you know, dive into these, and was there any action taken and any progress made on these at all? Yeah, uh, we did, and myself and you know the handful of us, as time permitted, we kind of divvied up these cases and and worked them as best we can. Uh, the seventy three case, uh, the assassination of uh, Israeli military attaché Joe Alon, was a case that was somewhat near and dear to my heart because uh, it had happened in my neighborhood when I was a kid. And uh, lo and behold, we had an open case file on it. So I kind of took ownership of that one. And fast forward many, many years later, 37 years later, I would write a book about that. But um, the other cases were really kind of pivotal tripwire moments in the history of our organization. So for example, tragedy always loomed in Beirut. So you had these horrific bombings in the 80s, 
But then people had forgotten that in 1976, our U.S. ambassador and the econ officer had been kidnapped and murdered. And that was Ambassador Malloy and Waring. And they were kidnapped and murdered by radical Palestinians. Interestingly enough, I just re-looked at a declassified CIA report from that, uh, learning more details that I never knew at the time uh, in the 80s uh, surrounding the case. Uh, which again is very interesting uh, as to how the ambassador was kidnapped and murdered. And remember, well, your listeners may not know, there was really no protection for U.S. ambassadors by our organization in that time period. You had a foreign service national driver that in most cases was not trained to get himself out of trouble. And therefore, kidnapping was not difficult. At times, there would be armored limousines, but no training provided to the driver of that armored limousine. So it wasn't difficult to actually target an ambassador in that time period. So we had the 76 case in Beirut, and then we would have another case in in 73 that was a cold case, which would ultimately become near and dear to my heart, and that was the the murders of our diplomats in Khartoum. And that was carried out by the Black September organization, who was responsible for the Munich massacre uh, in 1972. And uh, the diplomats were murdered, literally lined up inside the Saudi embassy in Khartoum and assassinated by Black September, who was on a reign of terror in the early 70s that far surpassed anything that al-Qaeda did. Uh, early on and far surpassed anything that Hezbollah did early on, uh, I would eventually connect the dot that the Black September organization had been responsible for the murder of Colonel Alon in 1973 in Bethesda, Maryland. And they had also been responsible for the murders of our diplomats in Khartoum. So uh, the Black September organization, I've kind of made it a study over the last 25 years to to know as much about them as I possibly can. And I've actually got a chapter coming out on the organization for uh, an academic uh, university uh, that asked me to write kind of the history of the organization from that time period. So um, we were no, the organization was, was not short on tragedy. And then kind of like the farther back you went, Cody, you would find kidnappings of diplomats in in Latin America, which quite frankly have never been looked at, and kidnappings and murders of our diplomats that have never been looked at. And I never had the time to get to those. And as best I can tell, nobody ever has since that time period either. Yeah, Ben, DS has certainly evolved in how we, uh, you know, keep our folks safe overseas. That's, that's, uh, why we've how many agents by the way were there or did, were in ds during your time frame it's a great question i used to know that numeric but i just don't i do know that from doing research from the 70s there were about 200 worldwide uh in the 70s if memory serves me right which stayed about the same until the early 80s mm-hmm. and i think when i first started we had maybe three four hundred uh and we grew to like over a thousand pretty quickly with all the Inman higher classes that went back to back to back. Uh, and 
uh, I was one of the first Inman higher classes uh, put out under the street. Yeah. Wow. Interesting, interesting stuff you have here. Um, uh, Joe Alon, so he was he was murdered in the U.S. He was an Israeli colonel, burned in the U.S., working at the Israeli embassy, I'm assuming, D.C. Um, could you give us a little backstory on that case and, and kind of uh, what where, where it landed, where it ended? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I, uh, for anybody that wants more on this case, I wrote a book about it called Chasing Shadows, but uh, July 1st, 1973, uh, Colonel Alon uh, is with his wife. Uh, they attend a diplomatic reception for an Israeli diplomat that's going out of, out of town. He was assigned as the second attache uh, at the Israeli embassy in Washington. So he and his wife attend a diplomatic function in Chevy Chase, Maryland for a diplomat that's transitioning back home. Uh, it's around midnight. Uh, he pulls into his driveway uh, on Trent Street in uh, Bethesda slash Chevy Chase, Maryland, very close to the D.C. line. Uh, his wife gets out, uh, goes into the house. Uh, Colonel Alon is reaching behind him to get his coat jacket. Uh, he had a little bit too much to drink, which, you know, quite frankly, wasn't unusual in those days. Uh, and a gunman, a single shooter, stepped out of the trees very close to him on his left. He's getting out of the he's driving the car. The shooter is on his left. The door is open. Uh, a gunman steps out from uh, the trees and fires uh, several rounds into Colonel Alon, uh, and he ends up being killed. Uh, the gunman runs to a getaway car that the wife sees leaving down the street, and the shooter and the driver vanish. Um, the next day, the Israelis would fly the family out of uh, the country back home. Actually, President Nixon um, authorizes the use of Air Force Two to fly uh, the body and the Elan family home. Uh, the case was pretty much a local police case. Uh, I, I became a cop in the town, in the county where this occurred. Uh, I had also joined the rescue squad in 1975, two years after this murder, uh, they were the ones that transported uh, Colonel Alon to the hospital that night. And um, so it was kind of personal to me from that standpoint. But um, I, years, this, this is another one of these cases, Cody, where um, there wasn't enough time to do a lot of follow-up. And, and I wish I had, and I didn't. Because a lot of people, when I started relooking at this case, had, had subsequently passed away. Uh, you know, the, the the initial FBI response included one FBI agent, Stan Ornstein, great guy. He subsequently passed away. Uh, he helped me immensely uh, with putting the book together. Uh, Stan, uh, he had never responded to a murder before. He was an FBI resident agent. Uh, he remembers getting to the scene and the body had been transported to the hospital and he's trying to remember what they taught him at Quantico. And he said, Fred, I, I, I was kind of trying to collect my wits about me. So I just pulled out a measuring tape and a Polaroid and I just started measuring random things and taking pictures because I didn't really know what to do. Uh, the, uh, the Israelis show up on the scene. 
the diplomat uh, from, diplomats from the embassy, uh, one of the uh, uh, military officials that was there kind of makes an excited utterance to the fact that that Joe was uh, working intelligence. Uh, and uh, that really would kind of come back years later to kind of point me in different directions. But to make a long story short, Cody, for the for the benefit of your listeners, uh, I eventually was able to uh, identify the shooter. Uh, I was able to uh, determine that the Black September organization had carried out the attack and that um, in essence that Colonel Alon was a was a perfect target. Uh, you know, the man was a hero in the state of Israel. He was a decorated fighter pilot. He was part of the Israeli Air Force original uh, squad when they stood up their team back in 48. Um, the uh, Palestinians had blamed the Israeli Air Force for bombing uh, some camps. Uh, you know, the Black September organization was used to spectacular attacks. Munich at the Olympics, the killings of our diplomats in Khartoum, and the list goes on, uh, killing Mossad agents. Uh, and obviously, uh, Joe Alon was uh, added to that list of individuals that they uh, identified and, and carried out a very successful attack on. So um, I was, I, I, you know, you've done books, you know what it's like. Um, I, I feel very honored to have uh, gotten that story uh, published in Israel uh, with a Hebrew edition of the book that uh, the uh, Israeli Air Force actually had on their official website for a while uh, in, in honor and memory of, of Colonel Joe Alon. So um, that to me is, um, you know, the kind of story that I'm winding back the clock that I wish in the 80s I had just spent more time working on. Uh, but he was kind of a man that was forgotten by two countries. You know, the Israelis kind of forgot about him in many ways. And obviously we we did too. Um, having said that, you know, the, the killing of Colonel Alon really resulted in how can we better protect resident foreign officials? You know, where, where did that ball get dropped? Um, can we get the U.S. Secret Service Uniform Division, which at the time was called the Executive Protection Service, if memory serves me right, and um, what should we be doing more? Uh, the Israelis learned some hard lessons. They started moving their diplomats from private residences into uh, high-rises for physical security's sake, but uh, uh, it, it's, I, I, I'm convinced that I've got about 85% of that story straight. Um, I think there's 15% of that that I'll never never be able to figure out. Uh, the original cold case detective and I uh, has since retired from the Montgomery County Police Department. And literally this morning, he and I were talking about this case. He sent me a note saying, uh, Fred, do you remember this surveillance report? And I said, yes, but I'm gonna have to go back to my files and look at it. So. Uh, I must have Cody uh, five boxes of of notes and original reports and crime scene pictures and interviews that I've done surrounding this case. Uh, this is the type of uh, 
you know, this is what books are written about. And by that, I mean like novels, fiction novels, a uh, black September operating in the U S you know? Um, and so that kind of takes me to another point is what did you learn from that during that time frame? Were, were there more terrorist groups that you all learned of operating on U S soil? I know a lot of what you were doing is, uh, you know, because of the state department nature of our foreign policy department overseas work, but were, did, did you have any knowledge of, of, you know, activity of terrorist groups operating during the, during the late seventies and eighties more freely here in the U S? Oh yeah. It, it really kind of uh, opened my eyes to how much nefarious and clandestine activity was, was underway inside the United States during that time period. Look, 1973, you have Watergate. You've got uh, the Nixon White House melting down. As the original FBI agent told me, there wasn't a lot of time to work on this kind of case because we were doing so much Watergate work, so much investigation of radical radicals inside the United States. You had the Weather Underground conducting bombings at the State Department, the Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol, ROTC offices, corporate headquarters. Uh, you had uh, the Cleaver faction of the Black Panther organization that was carrying out attacks uh, inside the United States. You had the Soviet KGB that was literally holding training in Cuba for all these old radical groups from the United States. And so as you start to pull that thread back from that time period, uh, I think there were, you know, from 1968 to 1973, uh, the scope of bombings in this inside the United States alone were astronomical in the thousands and high value targets such as the State Department and the Capitol and the Pentagon. And so uh, there was so much chaos that this was just another killing. Right. And obviously there should have been more done, but uh, it just simply wasn't. Uh, the one thing that I've subsequently learned from just looking at that time period was the the Soviets were heavily engaged with training and supporting all of these radical organizations uh, on up into the 80s. Uh, and let's face it, from a foreign policy perspective, you know, a dysfunctional United States, uh, a disintegrating United States, a chaotic United States is good for Mother Russia. And um, in that time period, the Soviets were just uh, knee deep with all these organizations. So, you know, some of the things that kind of drove me crazy about that case that I've never really ever figured out is I've kind of prided myself over the years to to deconstruct the attack cycle. And. I think Colonel Alon was under surveillance for about two weeks before he was hit. Uh, but I don't know the identities of the people that were involved in the surveillance operation. And so you and I could come together if we were working on our unit and try to figure that out and say, well, who would have assisted the Black September organization in identifying Colonel Alon? Who would have found them? Who would have helped? with following him about. But more importantly, who would have known that he was at that diplomatic reception that night, the night he was killed? And how would they know to have that shooter in the bushes waiting outside of his driveway to kill him? 
And so those are the kinds of details that you and I put on our CTPII hat back in DS. We would want to know. And I don't know. And it drives me crazy. <laughs> but I do know, Cody, that if I don't figure it out, and if the old cold case detective don't figure it out, there ain't nobody that's going to figure it out. <laughs> right on. Oh, well, you've had a, a hell of a career, but I, I kind of want to jump into now. Uh, you've, uh, you know, you're on social media. You and I have communicated a bit, but you're involved in so much. Uh, you've listed a lot of what you're doing now. The, the BBC series. You're writing a, a paper, an academic paper, I believe, for uh, a college. Um, and I saw, if you can talk about this, I saw recently you uh, uh, did some work uh, with Jack Carr, the uh, author of The Terminal List, and which is now Amazon Prime series. And on our first conversation you and I had, you were going to do a cameo in something. And I don't know if you can talk about that, but what are, what are you doing now? I also know your, you know, your professional life and, and, and your, your, I think maybe your full time uh, with Ontic. But can you talk about any of that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, you know, the, the power of, uh, of the the small community of being authors and the power of podcasts. Uh, I mean, I first uh, became friends with Jack Carr before his first book, The Terminal List, came out. And and he has just been a wonderful friend. He was recently through Austin and he and I went to dinner together. Uh, and he's been a huge supporter of of me over the years, just putting my books and all his books and uh, also Brad Thor, I must mention Brad, uh, I, he has, um, in his, one of his thrillers, Spy Master, uh, he has his protagonists and their hit team, uh, Scott Harvath and company that's flying out for a mission and they're reading my book, uh, Beirut Rules, uh, on the flight out. And so he kind of wrote Beirut Rules into his thriller script and, he also, I did not know, had been somewhat of a fan of mine. And when my memoir first came out, he took portions of my memoir and kind of weaved it in his book. Uh, and he gave me a nice shout out on his website. And that kind of started a dialogue with Brad and I. So uh, they're great people. They, they really, really help the writing community. Uh, they put my books in their thrillers, which is kind of cool to read. Uh, another guy, uh, Don Bentley, a former FBI agent, uh, Apache uh, war hero, to be blunt, Apache uh, pilot. Uh, he picked up the Tom Clancy series, and he's literally got me helping Fred Burton, helping Jack Ryan in one of his books. And I, I, he, he did not tell me he was going to do that, so I'm reading the book. Uh, I have it probably behind me here somewhere. Um, don't know which one it is now, but I'm reading along, and all of a sudden I'm I'm in helping Jack Ryan, and you know, for a, for a guy like me, Cody, when when we were when I was a young agent in the '80s, I would read and carry on these trips, you know, the Hunt for Red October, and Patriot Games, and you know, for these long flights on Pan Am and TWA, you know, to Timbuktu, or in the Down Room on Protection, right? And now all of a sudden I'm reading about myself in a Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy novel. So, uh, you know, the, the power of, uh, of a book is, is somewhat amazing when you start thinking about it. So, uh, I, I don't know how I got here. Uh, but, um, it's great to have friends like that, that, 
uh, reach out and and give back, right? And so that's what I try to do now. You know, if if folks from DS reach out and want to write a book or they're thinking about doing a book, uh, you know, I always say, well, why do you want to do that to yourself, right? And what what kind of story can you tell? And I do my best to try to help and give back as much as others have kind of given back to me. Yeah, well, you're certainly well known uh, in DS. Every everyone knows Fred Burton, and we had so when I was in Baghdad, my first uh, tour, uh, well, my first TDY tour was 2010, and uh, we were in the uh, Protective Operations Division, we called it, but it was the Pod. POD and it was our protection guys and we would work with the triple cast. So we would have one agent in charge with uh, your triple canopy, former Blackwater guys that would go out and run missions. And a copy of your book was in there uh, of ghost. That was the first, oh, wow. that was the, that was the only one we knew at the time. Um, and it sounds like you've had, you've, you've had others probably that were published back then as well. This is 2010 time frame, but, uh, but it was up there for, for, for us to access and read when we're hanging out and, and, uh, and yeah, it was, uh, that's, that's how we, that's how I first, and again, I was a new agent, right? I was, I had been in maybe two years or less at that point. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and I mean, I wrote, yeah, you're right. I wrote a book, but it's not on the level, even close to where, to where you are. You're, you're a really, really prolific writer. And, uh, could, could you tell us, well, well please do let's, uh, you're a humble, you're a humble guy, but, but what, uh, what are all the books you have out? You, you have multiple. Yeah, well, I've got a few, and um, I, I know I'm going to probably sound like a jerk when I say this. The um, uh, my first, you know, they're they're in different languages, so, and I've kind of lost count with some, and I probably should know better, but I don't. Um, my first book, my memoir, Ghost, was published by uh, Random House, and to be blunt, Cody, I I struck. I, I struck gold early on because uh, Random House got me on the Daily Show with John Stewart for that book launch, and that in itself just made the book a complete success. So you know the power of national media and marketing, you know, is something that I've learned the hard way in this business. Like you know, it's it's a tough business. There's a lot of books, and, and consumers have a lot of choices. So Ghost was my first book. It was printed in several languages. I, I I know French for sure, even Romanian, I think. Uh, then my second book was uh, Chasing Shadows, which is a story of the murder of Colonel Alon in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, and I, I have enough material for a sequel. I just don't have time to write it at the moment, but I, I'll get around to doing it at some point in time. Uh, my third book was uh, Under Fire, which was the story of our our version, our heroic agents that were in Benghazi that uh, were there to protect Ambassador Stevens. Uh, that was another book that the power of marketing, uh, Vanity Fair kind of excerpted that a month before the book was published. And that made it a instantaneous New York Times bestseller. Uh, that was optioned to HBO uh, early on HBO films. And then, uh, my last mainstream book, uh, is Beirut rules, uh, which is a story of the kidnapping and murder of CIA station chief, Bill Buckley, that we talked about, you know, during the course of this podcast, uh, all of my books have been optioned, uh, for film and entertainment rights. And, 
are in various stages uh, and so forth. And then I have a chapter coming out in a uh, book on the history of terrorism uh, by uh, one of the academic presses, uh, which I'm going to focus, which I focus solely on the Black September organization. So that's going to be coming out later this year. Uh, I've got uh, two other books in the works that are that are coming towards the end of the pipeline that uh, I'm not really at liberty to disclose just yet, but uh, one of them is along the the same themes that we've been talking about. Uh, and another one I think people are going to be somewhat surprised about. Uh, but um, so I've got two more on the horizon. Uh, with luck, inshallah, they should be out. Uh, uh, not, uh, by 20, one should be out in 2024. And the next one should be out in 2025 at the latest. And then uh, I need to, I need to go back to the cold case files, Cody, because there's still, a couple of them that uh, I need to tell. And my challenge is the hourglass of time is kind of turned against me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm no spring chicken anymore. Uh, but uh, I think that I always try to look at it from the eyes of how can I tell a story to highlight a, a hero in some vein uh, that was kind of put in these circumstances that, uh, which our organization had always been placed in uh, to tell a factual uh, and accurate account of exactly what took place, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Uh, so that kind of drives me just operationally when I kind of decide what to focus on. Yeah, understood. Well, awesome. Any, uh, any closing thoughts? Well, first, um, to go back to uh, what I said at the opening, I I can't thank you enough for uh, caring to reach out uh, to talk about this, my books, my my somewhat story, which is seems to be ancient history now. The older I get, uh, but I feel extraordinarily blessed and grateful for the opportunities that our old organization gave me. Uh, and I readily admit that early on in my career, probably even later on in my career, I had very little uh, control over anything I was doing or did I really know what I was doing at points in time in my career. But I think that that's the beauty at times of our organization uh, that uh, consistently over time since 1916, uh, they put people like you and I in these jobs where we kind of stuck with figuring things out. And uh, for that, I feel extraordinarily grateful uh, for that opportunity. Very good. And I would add to that, stuck with figuring things out at a very early stage in your career uh, <laughs> is uh, for me as well. Uh, so Awesome. Well, it's it's an honor for me to have you on the podcast. Uh, you you are the one taking the time out for me. I I would you know uh, am very grateful that that you did uh, come on and talk. And please let us know when your uh, next books do come out. And I will certainly push that out on my very small social media following, uh, but very dedicated uh, following uh, of of current agents, former agents, and uh, individuals aspiring to be agents, and then people that just want to hear a good story. 
So uh, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. And uh, before you go, I need to ask you a question. Yes, sir. What's your favorite story from DS? So uh, <clears throat> my favorite story, you mean of my own? Yeah, your own. So the catalyst of my uh, of my book, Agents Unknown, is uh, I great was in- Great title, no by the way. That's a great title. Thank you. And I made it plural, Agents it's not about me. It's about the end of the book. Obviously, it's my stories, but but it's we we're just an unknown organization. I started out like that, talking about that no one knows who we are. They think of FBI and Secret Service, etc. No one really knows about who we are and what we do. And then we have people like you that come on the podcast that really highlight all the different things we've been doing over the years. And so for me, uh, I was in in northern Iraq in Erbil in 2014 to 15. Um, I had three stories that really came that, that kind of are three big instances that that kind of caused me to write the book. One was ISIS got within eight miles of surrounding us. And we we did a whole complete, uh, you know, destruction of material, classified material, preparing to evacuate guys and girls on guys on rooftops with sniper rifles. You, you name it. We, it came that they were, were within 25 miles, 15 miles, eight miles within a 24 hour period. And finally, the the authorization from President Obama came to stop them in their tracks. And they were on the end, back end of that. We were hit with a VBID. The, uh, I led the ground team there to to respond to a VBID attack that uh, killed uh, killed three, seventeen wounded. Um, none of ours. Uh, some wounded on the inside of the embassy, but no one was killed. I'm sorry, of the consulate. But the main story is uh, if you've heard of the name Kayla Mueller. Kayla was the first ISIS American. Female uh, ISIS hostage, uh, American yeah. ISIS hostage, and um, as you know, being in the regional security office, uh, you have different portfolios or programs, and I happen to have the the personnel recovery program. Um, and we received a call from the United Nations that an individual, two individuals, had escaped the grasps of ISIS and were allegedly held with what they determined, what they dis what they thought were two Americans. We learned that one was. Um, uh, uh, an individual from New Zealand, and the other was an American. Uh, with was described with, you know, in very great detail. Uh, and once I ran that information, gave it to our FBI attaché. They said it was a, a a girl that went kidnapped, that went missing about a year prior, named Kayla Mueller. Uh, and so I led. I was the first American government official to hear from anyone you know, that had heard from Kayla Mueller. So I uh, ended up getting on a special operations aircraft. Um, they heard about it whenever I put the message out over the, uh, over the net. And, uh, uh, you know, they said, Hey, I was going to take a, what, what was about an eight hour drive with a motorcade to get to this refugee camp to interview these two ISIS hostages that were held with Kayla and uh, special ops were there on the ground. And uh, they said, Hey, we'll give you a lift if you let us come with you. Um, so they sent one of their Intel guys and, and I interviewed and, and they took a ton of action after that. Kayla, unfortunately was not recovered. She was alleged, she was killed, but alleged by a Jordanian airstrike. Um, but they ended up, uh, taking that information I initially provided going back several times and ended up hitting the house and killing the individual that was raping Kayla, um, and, uh, uh, recovering what they call terabytes of terrorist finance information, terrorist plots, uh, uh, uh our artifacts from the Mosul museum, et cetera. And so that was my little small piece at the beginning was the catalyst to get that ball rolling to what turned out to be a, a larger operation. And, and like you, all of my stories, or at least those main ones 
uh, are all uh, backed up with, uh, you know, uh, news reports and studies, et cetera. So uh, as an agent with about 10 years on, I, I was I would I would be the one with the, the least experience in DS to write a book. And so I wrote it from a ground level agent, like basically within this time frame. I had all this stuff happen and was given all this responsibility. And I think it really resonates with uh, new agents uh, or, or aspiring agents and new agents that come in and, and is many times a motivating factor uh, for, for some of these folks. They, I hear many times, Hey, we've read your book. It really, I would want it to go FBI, but now I want to do this or, um, and then I also discuss kind of my thought process as I go through these investigations or go through these, these, security measures were taken or, and you know, there's a number, there's 12 different stories in the book. And I think that's helped them. I've had people say, Hey, that's, this really helps me with my becks because you know, you get scenarios sure. there. And I think back what Cody did in this scenario. And so it's been really rewarding, um, you know, to, to, to be a part of, and I'm, I'm, I stay connected and I've got good reviews from, from uh, current active and former agents. Uh, and it's, it's been, it's been really good, but uh, thank you for asking me that question. That's a long-winded answer, but that would be the story <laughs> of. Uh, it's a, it's a great story. Most. It's a great story, Cody. And uh, thank you for what what you did and continue to do, and and for promoting uh, our agents unknown. And uh, I've always tried to do that myself as best I possibly can. So keep that torch lit, my friend. Yes, sir. I will. And thank you very much. Let's stay in touch and uh, let's not hang up yet. I'm going to stop the recording and then we'll chat a little bit after. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Mr. Fred Burton, everyone. Thank you, Fred, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast and sharing your experiences with us. Uh, as mentioned, Fred is a New York Times bestselling author, so please visit his website where you can find all his books. And that website is officialfredburton.com. Uh, so anyway, thanks again, Fred. Much appreciated, sir. Uh, what do we have now? So uh, if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you are interested in becoming a DSS special agent, I encourage you to go back to podcast one. We're at uh, you know podcast, I don't know, 20 or so now. So go back to podcast one, listen through this. It'll really give you some insight into the job, to what it takes what it entails, family life, uh, security scenarios, you name it. I do think it would be advantageous. You would probably learn some uh, a good bit from some of the scenarios that our guests have been in to help you on your BECS or oral assessment. And for those of you that are just learning about this, the oral assessment is the very difficult uh, exam that is required uh, to pass to become a DS special agent. So I think this podcast is helpful. It has I've been told that it is helpful. So go check that out uh, uh, from the beginning. Uh, and if you're uh, if you do like the podcast, please give it a like, write a review uh, wherever you are. If it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, you name it, please uh, please help us out and uh, and give us a like and write us a review. Uh, what else I have going on? Patreon. So Patreon is, if you're new to it, Patreon is a subscription service where you can get different levels. And I provide what 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 the they call behind the scenes content or whatever. Um, what I do is you can do five dollars, less like a donation. We have things like uh, you know uh, happy hours, uh, virtual happy hours with DS special agents with uh, with 
you know, guests on the po- of the podcast and with others. We do Ask Me Anything sessions. I write, you know, articles, thought-provoking articles about DS, global security, personal safety. I have what I call story time, additional stories that didn't make my book. Uh, I will, you know, I, 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 I get on the podcast type format like this and I, uh, I tell those stories. Uh, it's, uh, the, the other thing you can do, so that's five, you know, $5 gets you in. Uh, but if you want to go up the chain, we have four different levels. And on the last level, you can, if you are preparing to become a DS agent, uh, I have resources to help you out. So we can do Bach interview training, security scenarios, um, you name it, uh, you know, uh, writing samples, resume review, it's kind of the whole shebang, and we've had great success with it. Um, it's really just getting you to dig deep in your experience and convey that, and I give you feedback on how you convey in your message, and to see if those stories have merit, and to see, you know, if you're given a security, you know, an example, even though you don't have a security background, are you using, you know, your critical and creative thinking skills to, to fashion a good solution? So I help you out with that. So check it out. It's off the X. It's uh, patreon.com slash off the X underscore Inc. Uh, YouTube. I have been on YouTube for a couple years now. I think I have 40 or so videos. And what that is, is I get questions from, uh, followers, whether it be on, uh, Instagram, on YouTube, on Facebook. Uh, and I answer the questions. It's just me sitting there talking to you. Uh, but you can put it in the car while you're driving and listen, and it'll give you more information to particular questions that people have asked in the description. I write out what people have asked, and then you can say, right, I want to listen to this one or I don't. So YouTube, check it out, follow, like, much appreciated if you do. Uh, a Facebook group. The Facebook group is was one of the coolest things we've done. It's called Becoming a DSS Agent. It is where uh, candidates or aspiring DS agents interact with active DS agents, former DS agents, retired DS agents, and other candidates. And you bounce ideas off each other. Where are you at in the process? What about this? What about that? And I have designated group experts they come in and they will acknowledge your posts and say some things. And it's really fair to cut through the clutter of the 911 forums and all the other different uh, platforms that might be out there that are giving you, I think Pinterest is one of them that might not be giving you the, the, the best Intel, right? So it's to cut through all of that. Um, you know, if you know the answer, we allow it. If you don't know the answer, we ask that you don't say anything uh, so that, you know, you can get really good Intel from that. Uh, Instagram is where I started all this out. Uh, the it's uh, off the X underscore Inc. I've been a little slower lately. I got a family. Um, I haven't been posting as much on Instagram, but I do post some things about DS, about global security, about personal safety, about school security, um, different things. So uh, you know, follow me there. Uh, and then of course my book, Agents Unknown: uh, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent in the Diplomatic Security Service. Um, that one, uh, is available on Amazon. It's available, uh, in audio version on audible, uh, digital version, iBooks, Barnes and Noble online. Uh, you can go to codyperon.com and get it there. Uh, it'll, it'll just to redirect you to a site, but that's the easiest way to go find it or just Google it, uh, just uh, type it in on Amazon. Uh, also on codyperon.com, I have gear. I don't have too much left, but I do have some hoodies and I have some shirts and I have some hats. Uh, and it's off the X, different designs. Uh, I have a couple of high threat protection shirts that are, that have become really popular. Uh, and so, uh, if you choose to support that way, I am grateful to, for you to buy, you know, hats, uh, patches, stickers, you name it. Uh, again, that's codyperon.com and, uh, all of this helps. So, so the only things that cost are the book and the Patreon, uh, the Instagram, obviously Facebook group, the YouTube, 
uh, those are all free resources that that I think uh, you will find a bunch of value in. So thanks again for all your support. And as always, hit me up if you have questions. Let me know how, how I can help. Info at CodyPeron.com or DM me on my different mood, uh, mediums, and I will get back to you. I appreciate you all listening. I'll catch you on the backside. Thanks, y'all. Out.